Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the brand new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, May 21st, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano, founder and executive director. My co-host, Liz Pollack, is on vacation, so I am flying solo this week. On this week's episode, we're talking about design changes happening in our cities around the world as communities create open streets for physical distancing. As many stay-at-home orders are lifting, people are getting outside. We need that fresh air after all this quarantining, but we still need to stay six feet apart. So cities are stepping up in some interesting ways. We'll have a guest co-host, Jonathan Burke. He's director at Patronicity and is active in helping create vibrant communities. Then Jonathan and I will interview Jeff Speck, He's a city planner and author who has been advocating for walkable cities for years and will get his take on the changes happening because of COVID-19. Plus, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. First, some news from the Design Museum. Last week, we had our second Design Museum live event in our sketching series. We featured Patrick Cunningham. He's an architect at Perkins & Will and demonstrated the importance of sketching throughout the building design process. Here's a clip from Patrick. Sketching uh, leaves a room for us to complete each other's sentences. And I think when you work on a team, that's really important. And what that means is that you can draw in such a way that you're not giving all of the answers to your teammates. And buildings become rich when there's an idea that is legible to everyone. And everybody on the team is kind of writing writing the book at the same time you're inventing the language and when you draw you can draw in such a way that you're giving you're capturing the ideas that your team is talking about but you're capturing them in a way that is loose enough that everybody can kind of go off and explore those ideas through the building it's so great to have hundreds of people from around the world attending our live events and we have a bunch of events coming up that i think you're going to love on may 26th we have the co-founders of open source wellness talking about their unique model as a behavioral health pharmacy. So when your doctor tells you you need more exercise, they can actually write you a prescription for open source wellness. It's very cool. So that's May 26th. On June 12th, we have two senior researchers within Steelcase's Workplace Futures group, Patricia Wang and Lenka Chachova. They've been doing this amazing research and uncovered the five growing pains of global innovation. This is super relevant right now as we're all trying to collaborate remotely across geographies and cultures. That's June 12th. Then, June 26th, is our next event in our sketching series. We have Michael DiTullo sketching footwear. He spent most of his career working alongside athletes like Michael Jordan to develop footwear brands. So if you're into sketching, join us for that on June 26th. Okay, those are all on our website. Be sure to grab your tickets at designmuseumeverywhere.org. And as always, our Design Museum Live events are free for members. Speaking of membership, our 50-50 membership challenge is still on. We're trying to raise $50,000 and grow our membership to include people from all 50 states and 50 countries. Membership means a lot to us. Membership supports everything we do from educational programs to this very podcast that you're listening to. So we're at 37 states and 14 countries and we need your help. If you know people you think would love the Design Museum in say Nevada, West Virginia, Vermont, or Michigan, or hey, Spain, Costa Rica, India, please share the museum with them send them our website or a link to our podcast. You can even ask them to be a member. We have a map on our website that shows where we're looking to grow our membership to, and you could be part of that. On another note, we know this month there will be a lot of new grads who are entering uncertain times and could really use some design inspiration. So with the support of our amazing board of directors, for every new member that signs up, we're giving a student or recent grad a one-year membership to the Design Museum. So become a member to help a student 
And students, if you'd like to sign up for the waitlist for a free membership, visit designmuseumfoundation.org students. Okay, on to this week's main topic. COVID-19 is necessitating rapid change in our cities. Cities are pretty much, by definition, dense, with a lot of people living really close together. But what do we do when we need to stay at least six feet apart? How do you even stay six feet apart when sidewalks aren't six feet wide? The answer might just be rethinking the design of our streets and our cities overall. Our guest co-host this week has been advocating for changes in the urban environment before and during the pandemic. Jonathan Burke is a placemaker and new urbanist in every sense of the word. Since 2016, he served as director at a placemaking startup called Patronicity and their new placemaking advisory firm, Bench Consulting. Together, they're supporting hundreds of community-driven projects around the country. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for being here. Hey, Sam. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Glad to have you. So I'd love to start. You've been focused on building these vibrant communities and supporting it in many different ways. I think you have a super cool job. So can you tell us like how you do that at Patronicity? Sure. Yeah. So I've been there for about four years now. Um, Our traditional sort of model has always been to provide uh, community groups with access to grant funding through our our state organization sponsors. Um, And then we help those groups raise funds through crowdfunding campaigns for matching dollars from those uh, crowdfunding pools and those grant pools. Um, Going beyond that that fundraising effort, we typically do engage groups early on in the process. And in Massachusetts, I've been able to and lucky enough to work with um, gosh, probably over 70 groups and 70 communities at this point across the state, just re-envisioning sort of what their main streets and downtowns and commercial corridors could look like. And I think when you talk about placemaking, um, it's a really broad term and it's used for a lot of different descriptors and used to describe a lot of different components in our daily lives. Um, we always like to focus on the community-driven element of placemaking and the best placemaking projects that we've worked on and the best place place making most successful place making projects are the ones that are really community driven and community grassroots um, approach. Uh, we happen to be in you know in a global pandemic. Can you help our listeners understand? Because I think they're seeing some oh that street's closed and this is, you know, what change is happening here. What's that link between some of these changes people are seeing and COVID nineteen? Cities like Portland, Oakland. Uh, Minneapolis, Denver, Nashville, Tampa, uh, Milwaukee, New York City are all taking a second look at their streets, right? Our sidewalks are too narrow. Um, In most cases, public transit is being looked at sort of as this thing to kind of stay away from. Right now, it's a tight indoor confined space. Um, Sure, getting into your car and driving is an alternative, but if everybody does that, no one's going to move because we're going to be gridlocked, Um, not to mention the impact on our environment and health. So how do you encourage people to walk when they can? How do you encourage people to bike safely when they can? And I think that's what a lot of cities are starting to look at now when they start talking about um, anywhere along the paradigm from um, tactical throwing a trash can and closing off your street to cars to the real formal open streets um, type of events, which we've seen in Boston on Newbury Street. Obviously, those are not recommended for today's environment. Um, but it's really, it runs the gamut of everything from shutting down a street and opening up to just people to, I think, something that more cities are getting into now, which is more of a mentality shift than an actual design shift. Um, it's how do you take your streetscape and tell drivers that, hey, these are going to be shared streets now. You don't necessarily have the priority from the curb over that you did previously, so you have to go slower. 
you can't drive through at 50 miles an hour and you have to be on the lookout for pedestrians and bikers who might be sharing the roadways with you. Um, and I think from where we've seen that rolled out in the U.S. so far, it's been successful. The other, the other element that I've been seeing a lot of is, you know, restaurants coming back online and doing more outdoor dining and outdoor dining takes space, right? Yeah. And we're, I've had a couple of conversations recently in Boston and in a couple of different cities in Massachusetts. And I think everybody's start, starting to look at, I mean, this is, there's no pandemic playbook. And I think that's the biggest thing everyone has to realize. Right. There's no set playbook on the steps like coming out of a hurricane or coming out of other kind of natural disasters we're writing that playbook today for the 21st century mm -hmm. um, and i really think that when you talk about restaurants if they're limited to 25 50 percent capacity um after being closed for three months a lot of them aren't going to make it through that three months the ones that do if they can only open a 25 or 50 percent capacity and a lot of people don't feel comfortable eating indoors you really have to rethink okay where can I find that restaurant some outdoor capacity? And in many cases, the only available space, if the sidewalk's too narrow, is going to be the street. Um, so in a lot of cities, that will mean taking parking. Um, that will mean closing down streets and creating open streets. Um, you're, it's a, it, taking parking, and especially in Boston, is always a battle. Um, right. It's... It will be one here. I'm sure there'll be people who are upset about taking parking spaces. But the question is, do you want to let somebody uh, park a car in a space for f up to four hours and potentially spend a few dollars at a local business or let that restaurant serve potentially up to $5,000 a night in service and keep people in their jobs and 10, 20, 30 mm -hmm. people employed uh, with paychecks right. coming in? So those are the kind of questions you have to balance right now. And I think... yeah. That's interesting to think about in terms of literally space yep. utilization. I mean, that's what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, just a, a small parking space, but that small parking space, when it's not clogged with a car, uh, can really be put to use for local commerce. And I think you're going to, just by necessity, have to see cities moving forward to allow those types of uses. Um, mm -hmm. Traditional parklets, to just, just placing tables and chairs in the street. And, and I think you're going to see more of just the, we're putting a bollard and some tables and chairs in the street and you can start serving tomorrow. Um, and that's kind of what it has yeah, to be. Yeah, I want to talk about that like mentality because yep. I've seen like um, a restaurant put up like little mini greenhouses and, you know, people are just doing stuff. Like you said, there's no playbook, but Europe, <laughs> they've got a lot of this figured out where there are a lot of open streets and there's restaurants that are like spilling out into the plaza and gosh, it's just our reliance on the automobile in the United States just when you really get down to it, we haven't kept those spaces open to do those kinds of things. Yeah, and it's it's a mentality shift. And that at the end of the day, all these changes are major mentality shifts. Um, I think if we can see these rolled out successfully in the interim, uh, I, I mean, they're all they're all temporary, like you said, right? So if there are folks who don't like one installation, then you can kind of work with them to shift it and adjust it and move it somewhere else. Yeah, let's talk about that tactical urbanism, right? So can you give our listeners who may have never heard that term, but I've now I'm hearing it like on the news because people, like you said, are just putting a planter or putting a parklet. So what's tactical urbanism and how does it a tool for people sure. to kind of take back the streets? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of sort of examples of what tactical urbanism looks like. I mean, you can have people coming out of their house and just putting up signs in the street. Um, really, when you think about something that's more tactical in nature, it's take away the, the permanence element of it. Um, a lot of times you talk about 
the planning is the process in tactical urbanism. So when you're trying to re-envision a space, you're using these aspects of tactical urbanism to actually physically plan what that will look like and it's an iterative process. So you're installing the bollards, you're closing down a street, you're creating a shared street. If it doesn't work, someone will tell you why it doesn't work in, in the community and then you'll move it. Um, but the idea is that it's yeah. not a huge heavy investment up front. It's something that's meant to be more of a, an iterative process. And It's like a prototype, right? Yeah, that's exactly. I've, I've always tried Absolutely. to think about it. It's like the design process. And you know, I'm, I'm sure as we'll talk to Jeff, who's a city planner, these projects are so complex. It is tough to envision what the impact of any given change could be, especially if you know, you're not used to kind of envisioning and like creating, you know, these kind of plans. So what I always find interesting about these tactical urbanism projects is people have a lot of complaints. They're like, oh, I'm not going to be able to park my car. I'm not going to be able to do this. The world's going to end if this change happens. And then you do a tactical urbanism project to just do it for even a week and the world doesn't end. And actually people are pretty happy with the change. It, it goes back to, I think when I was talking about before, about how we sort of work with cities that are trying to think creatively about their access public space or their sort of traditionally vacant public spaces like alleys and empty lots. Um, a lot of times it's just getting people to think in a different mindset. Um, and when you start mm -hmm. talking about making major changes to the streetscape, it's always no, 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 no. And then you can't really visualize what that change looks like or the impact that change actually has on the feel of the neighborhood until it's there. So that's the real right. power behind tactical urbanism and especially um, in today's time and today's climate, that's the real power is we can do it quick. It can be done cheaply mm -hmm. um, and you can change it, right? So if there's a lot of feedback right. that says, you know what, we don't like it on our street, pick it up and you move it. Um, and that's the strategy that Oakland, California is taking with their slow streets program. They laid out 75 miles of slow streets last month. Um, they've taken away some streets after resident feedback and they've added some streets after residents requested it. Yeah. So try it. If it doesn't work, change yeah. it. Keep what works. I mean, seems like that's a simple design. process. <laughs> it does. It yeah. does. Um, I did want to chat about because there are some cities that, and again, I know we'll talk more about this with Jeff, but they are just going for the permanent route, just right out of the gate. Yeah. And it just seems like this is like this unique opportunity to make lasting change. I know you've thought about it. You're, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like this moment. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, we've we've always obviously done a lot of thinking and sort of just reading about what other cities are doing right now. Um, it's it's a chance to really try all those projects that you've kind of had in the in like you said in a plan for the last few years, mm -hmm. but they're delayed for whatever reasons due to budget restrictions or whatever it might be. Um, it's a chance to try them, um, and I think that that's where the tactical urbanism aspect comes in because you can pull those plans off the shelf. You can implement that new protected bike lane with a few bollards and a few temporary installations um, and all of a sudden really put those to work. I think mm -hmm. I don't know if we're going to see the approach that a couple of European cities are taking, like Paris installing 400 miles of protected bike lanes essentially across the region to try and just be a redundancy on their subway system. Um, mm -hmm. Milan is trying to do the same thing. London has announced they're putting 250 million pounds towards bike infrastructure from the federal government. Um, these cities and countries all realize that if public transit is looked at as this dangerous element going forward for the next year plus and everybody gets into a car, it's going to be game, chaos game and game over. Um, and they're trying to get ahead mm -hmm. of it. And I think we're not 
seeing that sense of urgency yet in the U.S. And I hope we do get to that point. And I know Jeff will talk about that after too, about how um, I, I think he'll talk about how essentially like you were just talking about, it's a real opportunity to kind of pilot those projects that we've been talking about for a while and get them adopted. I think that's, we talk about changing people's transportation patterns. This is an opportunity to do that. Do we want them to change from train to car or from train to bike if they can, or from train to walk if they can? Uh, as a last question, uh, before we get into sure. our interview with Jeff, how can citizens, right, just normal, everyday, living in the city, catalyze some of these changes, right? Like how can they kind of make change? Sometimes these projects seem so big and like, oh, yes, it's my neighborhood, but it's the city. Oh, it's the, it's the state. How can normal people just jump in? Yeah, what's really interesting, and I think you're seeing it now more than usual, um, even the city of Boston, I think, has put out a call that says if you have streets in your neighborhood that you want to see changed or you want to see opened or you want to see patio seating for that local small business, suggest make those suggestions. Um, in Cincinnati, they're implementing uh, a downtown open streets program to support all the area small businesses that was spearheaded by a local CDC and a property owner down there. Awesome. Um, so I really think, I mean... Like I said, there's no playbook. So I don't know if years and years of planning school even prepared most traffic planners and most urban planners for this. Um, so I think it, you kind of, it kind of puts everybody on this even playing field that says, yeah, look, the city knows how to get the implementation done, but you know how those streets work. You know how your streets are used and how you think mm -hmm. they could be used better. Um, and I think that's where they're kind of, you have the opportunity to definitely tell the city, and I hope this is true for most cities, but you really have the opportunity to kind of tell your city, hey, I think here's where we can make a difference and make a lasting impact through a small intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks so much, Jonathan. This has it's been great. So Thank good. Thank you. Looking forward to the next part. <laughs> yeah. Listeners, be sure to follow Jonathan on Twitter. He's at Berkey1. That's B-E-R-K-I-E -E, and then the number one. He's always sharing great posts and about placemaking and urban design and this photography is amazing. And check <laughs> Thanks, out Sam. Patronicity. You're welcome. Patronicity is such a cool model for making positive change in communities. And you could see some of their projects and campaigns at patronicity.com. Jonathan, please stay with us. I'd love to have you join the conversation with city planner Jeff Speck. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. And we're back, and we have a very special guest joining us. Jeff Speck is a city planner and urban designer who advocates internationally for more walkable cities. He's the author of a number of books on the subject, including Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time, and the more recent, Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places. 
He leads Spec and Associates, a private consultancy offering design and advisory services to public officials in the real estate industry. Welcome, Jeff. It's great to have you. Hey, thank you, Sam. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be on the show. I'm hoping to set a baseline. In your book, you talk about this general theory of walkability, and I wonder if you can give us what that means and kind of set the stage for the rest of our conversation. The general theory of walkability uh, ask the question, how do you get people to walk, specifically in American cities, when driving is so cheap and so easy and so subsidized in this country, and there's so many incentives to drive? Um, and uh, the answer is, at first, obvious. Well, the walk has to be as good as the drive or better, um, but then gets into greater detail and says, well, how does it do that? And um, my colleagues before me and I have, have kind of defined it down into four categories that uh, the walk in order to be as good as the drive has to simultaneously be useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting. And you need to do all four of those things at once. You can't just do three of them. Right, yeah. I mean, also in your book, you go into all of the benefits of living in a walkable city from sustainability in our environment to healthcare and just our overall quality of life. Can you talk a little bit about like what those benefits are we often, particularly as Americans, we ignore all the ways in which um, the suburban experiment was heavily subsidized and government-led. Uh, people think that, and folks like Joel Kotkin will still say that Americans voted with their feet and chose suburbs because they prefer them, but there were, in fact, an incredible um, concatenation of incentives, uh, principally among them uh, highway construction and the FHA and, and VA uh, loan programs that made it cheaper to buy a new house in Levittown than to stay in your inner city apartment. And in Walkable City, I start with this you know, first part of the book, which is called Why Walkability? And um, I have a chapter called Why, Why Johnny Can't Walk, which is the whole health conversation uh, led by a, a number of epidemiologists um, about all the ways that we've got the first generation of American kids who are expected to live shorter lives than their parents because we've engineered out of existence the useful walk in our society. And we've basically created a society in which the everyday um, uh, expending of calories just to live our lives has, has largely gone away. The economic argument uh, is quite compelling. You know, if, if people were really in the kind of housing they wanted to be in, based on what they tell you in polling, um, almost everyone would be living in walkable urban environments. And that's that's reflected by the correlation between walk score and, uh, and um, real estate value. Um, so there's a great market for making more walkable places if we can do it. The downside is, of course, how we've burdened our society and how we've burdened individuals with the cost of living uh, tied to this, this prosthetic device of the automobile. Um, I like to say that between <clears throat> 1970 and the present, we doubled the number of roads in the country, and we actually doubled the percentage of our income that we spend on transportation. So we went from spending 10% of, of our, you know, 10 cents on the dollar on getting around to 20 cents on the dollar, and we're not moving any, any faster. You know, we're stuck in traffic. And then, of course, there's the huge environmental uh, discussion, which is now all framed uh, properly uh, through climate change. The environmentalists now realize that, that the most green thing you can do is live in a city, uh, that your carbon footprint if you live in a city is a fraction of your carbon footprint in a suburb, which is a fraction of the carbon footprint of people in rural areas, principally because of the amount that we either drive or don't drive. 
We've come up with two other big reasons. There's a lot of great stuff like, like Donald Appleyard's study uh, from the uh, 1980s, where he showed very clearly how um, the number of friends that people said that they had, as well as the size of what they considered their home turf was principally a function of how many cars were driving by on their street. And uh, spoiler alert, the more cars, the fewer friends you have. And then of course the equity stuff, which gets so easily um, uh, misunderstood. Fully 39% uh, of people who bike to work are from the poorest quartile of income earners. Um, and then in terms of who's walking to work, um, it's much, much higher the less uh, the less money you have. So Sam and I were talking a little bit about this before and about how sort of this is an opportunity to potentially change people's habits. And I think if you look at, it was the Globe Spotlight series that came out last year that was really well done, and well researched in terms of people's trans transportation habits. And the studies that came out were showing their, your time to catch somebody to change their habits was when they changed jobs, because that was that time period where they were changing their day-to-day -day routines. And so now we're in that position where essentially everybody has changed jobs or changed commutes. So they're not commuting into work anymore. How do we use this opportunity and what are sort of the strategies for cities like Boston, but also for cities in the Midwest and cities in sort of the heartland to kind of start looking at how do we create a protected bike infrastructure for uh, people to feel safe biking to work? Because right now, I know in most places in the U.S., most people I talk to do not feel safe on the bike infrastructure that we have today. Right. Well, again, you know, a lot of cities, particularly the more progressive ones in Europe, like Paris and Belgium and London, and they're all asking this question, you know, what sort of future do we want to have? What do we want to make out of this? What is the city we want to come back to? And we know that there's this immediate crisis of uh, what distinguishes the conversation there is what they say is we know that there's this much greater looming crisis of climate change, um, which is going to hit us very quickly. Um, uh, this COVID thing is just temporary. Um, but we can't escape the fact that we're in for much greater doom and gloom if we don't fix that problem. And they understand that commuting is the biggest way that most uh, citizens, not, not you know corporations, but the, way the, the greatest way most citizens contribute to climate change is through their commuting. I believe it's much more fruitful in our American cities to stress only the present and the present crisis and to make it clear that we have a current spatial crisis in our cities, principally pertaining to sidewalks, um, in which there is not enough space for walkers, shoppers, joggers who are still jogging, um, bicyclists who are trying to get around. There's not enough room now in the current road system. Um, and that is causing the disease to spread more quickly. The, the current crisis has to do with sidewalk space. And we have very uh, um, wonderful and time-tested and now being applied in 250 or more cities, uh, techniques for increasing sidewalk space, taking advantage of the fact that automobile traffic is down by about 50% in most places. And the best local example is probably my street, Beacon, Beacon Street in Brookline, um, where the, the city has removed the extra lanes of traffic, that's what we call them. That's what Jeanette saw. saw. Actually, that was Harriet Trigoning in DC who was smart enough to call travel lanes extra lanes when the traffic didn't match the capacity. So we've taken two of the four lanes in Beacon Street and pushed the curb parking into those lanes. We've taken the 
the sidewalk and uh, pushed it out into the parking lane and created a biking area as well where that was in, in the areas where that was missing um, and uh, made our sidewalks much safer. And really every city that ha has any sort of crowding uh, needs to be doing this. Similarly, we have people going crazy in their houses, absolutely you know, stir crazy who need to get out and want to walk around. Many of them live on streets that have very few cars moving through them daily, but the cars are moving quickly because of the way the streets are engineered. And that's a great opportunity for this um, uh, slow streets or shared streets concept where you put a sawhorse at the end, you allow people through, but only in and out, not through. Um, and you make other traffic calming measures. And, and we've seen um, th those are very easy to do. You don't need to patrol them. You can do them ad hoc. You can do them yourself if the police don't show up. Um, th that's another great opportunity that people are taking advantage of in our cities. The planning is the process. And I think for a lot of cities right now, that's probably a motto that I know a lot are adopting. Um, but you, you would hope that you start to see more and more adopt. I know Oakland has had their slow streets program in place for, I think it's a month already. And they've actually, they laid out 75 miles of slow streets and then were able to shift based on resident feedback and pull some out and add some other streets to that program. And it seemed like, I mean, that's that's really a low cost, low political lift for a lot of mayors to kind of look into now. Um, and I wonder, I think as, as we talk about this going on over the next few months and potentially years, um, what do you see as some of the bigger things that a city like Boston should be doing and focusing on right now that they haven't been to date? What does a city look like that's doing everything it can do um, to, to help mitigate this current spatial crisis that we face? And I think number one, it, it, it gets the mandate, the manpower and the funding to remove every single extra driving lane, every single one. Um, and if, if a street is not part of a effective and safe bike network, right? What, what kills you in Boston is that there's a lot of safe places to bike, but they're just not connected to each other. And at some point in your commute, you've got to go through a Kenmore Square or in front of BU, uh, you know, near the, near the BU Bridge, and you're just taking your life in your hands, right, for a brief moment. And, and that's where the ghost bikes are, and that's where you don't want to be. Um, so why not? What is all these extra lanes are doing is encouraging drag racing. And you know that road deaths per crash have doubled in the U.S. because people are drag racing um, down the street. There are fewer crashes, but there's just as many deaths. So um, uh, any extra lane, what what is it doing sitting there? Uh, if we had the, the funding and the manpower, the person power, we would um, turn that into something else. Now, there are places where there's no sidewalk crowding, so it does not make sense to widen the sidewalk. But I would say most of our sidewalks are too narrow. So most of these lanes could be used to widen sidewalks. And most of our streets don't have adequate bike infrastructure. So these street, these lanes are available for that. Secondarily, just so I don't forget to mention it, yes, all of the um, pedestrian push buttons need to be made automatic. Um, third, every street that is a local street that is typically handling non-through traffic most of the time should be partially closed with sawhorses at each end and made into a, um, a shared space um, in the Barcelona model. Now, it's important though, and here's where I put my planner hat on, 
to not forget that a lot of our driving is capillary action. A lot of our best neighborhoods actually handle a lot of through traffic, but no one knows it on any one street because it's on 30 different streets. So I do think that we need to be a little bit careful about that. I don't think that um, the I don't think that every street that wants to close can close, but I do think that maybe not that many citizens yet um, uh, are on top of this in the way that they would close their streets. So probably temporarily, every street that wants to close can close. Yeah, but I think at some point we might need to preserve the capillary network. Uh, of through traffic that is our streets, but um, that that's a, a discussion for another day. Um, but those those three things: signal deactivization, open curbs, and shared streets. Um, I think are the foundation of um, of changing almost every street in your city. And I mentioned yesterday um, that uh, Burlington, Vermont, is literally changing a quarter of its streets citywide, and um, uh, the only thing stopping us from doing that is is funding and um, People power. Uh, I had a question for communities that tend to have an older crowd or an older demographic who is very attached to the automobile. Um, think of the Midwestern cities that have sort of those small downtowns, very wide streets, angled parking, which is probably the worst for most of those areas. Um, how do you sort of convince the proactive planners in those areas to start thinking, rethinking how they design their streetscapes? to encourage those elderly populations to get out of their cars and walk more, but also become more attractive destinations like a Portland, Oregon, um, for younger folks looking for that type of walkable downtown. Well, <clears throat> I write articles for AARP and I'm working in Elkhart, Indiana, and I'm working in Hammond, Indiana. Um, I'm working in Newton, Massachusetts, where you can often tell what someone's going to say at a, at a public hearing based upon on their age. Now that is that is changing, and some of the strongest advocates for walkability are are the older folks. Um, but they they're the older folks who either arrive on a bike or <laughs> or at one point would have arrived on a bike if you know if they could have. Um, but I, I think that in all my work in in American cities, many of which are conservative cities like Oklahoma City and Tulsa um, and in Indiana, um, I've been very careful to never tell people that, that well, it's not what I'm telling them, it's what I'm doing. I'm never trying to take away um, their, their convenient commute. The streets that I'm changing are streets in which, but just because this is what's politically possible, are streets in which there's a mismatch between supply of lanes and demand for lanes, and every city has them. Now all of our cities have them all over because of the uh, COVID uh, situation. But um, whether it's a COVID situation or just regular planning in a city, you want to identify those places where actually there is extra pavement um, because the street's wider than the demand upon it. And that's where you put the bike lanes in, the broader sidewalks, the parklets, um, all of those things. Um, I don't think it's fruitful to convince these people to live their lives in a different way. Um, and, you know, um, I've always said that the walkable city isn't about making people walk, but it's about giving people who want to walk the choice and the opportunity to do so. Same thing with, with cycling. Um, so we're, we're all about expanding opportunity uh, without uh, crippling anyone's current lifestyle. And right now we have that opportunity with all of these um, uh, empty lanes. Mm hmm yeah. Awesome. So to close, uh, and this question could be for both of you. I'm fascinated with street design, mostly because, and I think you read about this, Jeff, is like lots of 
small decisions get made by lots of different people that then shape this experience. It's like pre-COVID, post-COVID, it doesn't really matter to me, but can you help paint a picture of like what a vibrant street should look like? And if you want to say Portland, Oregon, they've done it, like that's a fine answer. Um, but maybe for our listeners who've never been to Portland, I'd love to hear sort of your vision for you know what that ideal, let's, let's call it, could be. Well, there's, I think it's important to understand, and I, I hope I get this, when I say people need to understand it, I hope that I understand it, but I, I think there's really two different types of streets. Maybe there's more, maybe there's more of a spectrum. But if you're designing streets, most of us look at it as, is it type A or type B? Type A is handling, handling a lot of traffic and transit, and it's pretty urban and commercial and um, um, wide and busy, and type B is all the other streets. All the other streets, if designed properly, like in the Netherlands um, or in, in Sweden, and most of the streets in, in, in Copenhagen and elsewhere, is a shared space. I think that's a, a misunderstanding some planners have, or even citizens, or, or I should say, bike advocates have, <laughs> that there needs to be a bike lane in every street when a, a properly designed street um, can be slow enough speed that everyone is mixing. But that's one type of street, and it's not to then. It's a mistake to then say, okay, well, that can happen everywhere. Everywhere, um, a great urban street like you would find in the Netherlands or Ber you know the or Berlin or Copenhagen um, has a limited number of drive lanes. You know enough so that vehicles can get around, but not enough to encourage driving. And every lane encourages driving, so we have to um, we have to think clearfully what, about what we mean by that. But a limited number of driving lanes, presuming um, that it's not one of these streets that's been designated as pedestrian only, which we can talk about separately, um, then it would likely have a dedicated bus lane so that the buses like you find in Bogota and other places are not held up by the people who choose to be stuck in traffic because it is the nature of drivers um, to create congestion. The only constraint to driving is congestion. So at least in America, however many lanes you have, they're going to be congested. So the question is how many lanes of congestion you want. You have a limited number of driving lanes that will be congested. You have a bus lane that isn't congested because it's only handling buses. And then you have a, um, a, a, a bike lane which is physically separated in some way um, from the other lanes. In Copenhagen, they have a lovely model where the, the bike lane is, is about three inches higher than the street. And then the sidewalk next to it is about three inches higher than the bike lane. Very clear. There's a material dif differentiation. The bike lane is probably asphalt. The sidewalk's probably pavers or cobble. Um, and of course, the sidewalk is broad and ample. Um, uh, those are the two types of streets. I, I, I think uh, if I was a little more ideological, I would have answered your question by saying that the ideal street has no cars on it um, and is shared among pedestrians and cyclists um, and maybe has a, a lightweight uh, vehicle like in an airport that hopefully doesn't beep like in an airport that takes you up and down um, the street. But uh, I'm working with what we've got here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. We got to work in the system we have. Yeah. Jonathan, anything to add on your like? Uh, yeah, I'll take a different approach to it. I mean, we work, we look at it from a, a, a placemaking perspective. So what mm. is sort of where are the opportunities for those pinprick interventions to add some activation to it? So I'm, I'm just thinking of like you were talking about Portland. I'm thinking of some cities like Montpelier, Vermont, that has a great little vibrant downtown with some three family buildings, great architecture, small local restaurants. But it also has these little sticking points all over downtown, which encourage you to not just walk through and visit. 
but also walk through and stop. And I think and Jeff will talk, could talk more about this, but I think the slower the traffic in a downtown area, the more likely that there's an opportunity for commerce there. If you're going 40 miles an hour through a downtown, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to stop and get out and, and <laughs> go patron that small business. Um, so it's a, a mix of that opportunity for the sticking points, but also moving people and cars through, but giving them a place to kind of get off and stop and uh, narrow narrow city streets. And a new study just came out a couple of days ago talking about how um, putting bike infrastructure in streets, not just in New York, which is where the initial study was done, but putting bike infrastructure in streets actually increases revenues um, to businesses. Yep. A new study That's I incredible. read today done by Waze um, asked the question, where in the world are drivers the happiest? Where do drivers, automobile drivers, have the least frustration? It's the Netherlands. And this is a country that's done more than any to limit automotive infrastructure and to like hobble every street, you know, in a vision zero way. Almost every street in the Netherlands is a slow speed street. And the greatest driver satisfaction uh, in the world is in the, ne in the Netherlands, which just kind of goes to prove, um, you know, Brent, Brent, Brent Totteren's saying that if you make a street uh, for cars, it, it doesn't even work for cars. <laughs> and if you make a street or a city for pedestrians, bikes, and, you know, milling around, it works for everybody. Thank you, Jeff. This has been great. It was so nice to have you. Well, this was fun for me too. A little social activity in the middle of my isolation. Listeners, check out Jeff's books, Walkable City and Walkable City Rules. Both are on his website along with lots of videos and other articles about this topic. I think it's a great resource, so visit jeffspeck.com. Now for our weekly dose of good design, where we share an example of good design that has impacted us or others in some meaningful way. I'll go first. My weekly dose of good design, I actually learned from one of Jonathan's tweets. And I saw that Jeff Speck is one of their advisors. So it's a very appropriate weekly dose uh, for this episode. And so it's a website called Street Mix. Basically, the whole website is a cross section of a street, right? So you're looking at the streetscape and you can sort of drag and drop and design your ideal street mix uh, just by like popping in a bike lane or widening the sidewalk. So you can play with the dimensions and you can play with the elements that are there. You, you can add mass transit. I even saw that you can add food trucks, trees, light posts. So as someone who played SimCity for hours when I was a kid, and so I spent probably an hour just on street mix, just tweaking things and there's a lot of really fun UX elements too that I know they thought about where it's automatically saving your progress and you can easily share your street and then people can kind of remix your street. And so just really fun uh, UX and web design. It's super fun to do and I, I hope you check it out. What I like most about it is that it empowers anyone to be a designer, right? With the right tools, we can all use our creativity to solve problems. And again, I've seen Jonathan use it and post some really cool, like, oh, here's an update to Newberry Street. Like, what do you think? 
And so it's awesome. Check it out, streetmix.net, and we'll link to it on our show page. It's a it's a great tool for people. We were talking about before too about how it's a great tool for people who are just citizens to kind of suggest proposals for right. their own streets. I think I'm not a trained planner. I went to law school. They don't teach us urban planning there. So I don't know the first place to go and try to redesign my street. What program would I use? Um, but I think streetmix is a real easy way to do it, and it's quick. And you can kind of just plug in your dimensions plug and play with lanes and bike lanes and seating and, and really change. And the are graphics great. are really yeah. nice and eye-catching. So it's like, yeah, if you showed this at a planning meeting. People would be impressed. I mean, people take yep. good design seriously because <laughs> sure. it's good graphics. And they'd be like, oh, wow, okay, you're a pro. I get it. Yeah. I get it. So yeah, thanks for posting that because I, I had a good time playing with it. All right, your turn for your weekly dose. I'm on the spot. Okay, so my weekly dose is in a similar vein, but it's going to be simple. Um, it's some of the signage that I've seen used in Oakland and in Denver and in Minneapolis and in Portland to designate their new shared street programs. And we were talking about this with Jeff too. It doesn't take a large infrastructure change to implement a shared street. Um, and I think that's sort of the biggest thing is it's a mentality shift, not necessarily an infrastructure shift. Uh, the signage clearly signifies that this is a shared street with a quick sign that tells pedestrians and bikers what to do here and drivers what to do here. So the the simplicity of the installation to change, to have a drastic change in how we look at our streets, I think has been sort of the coolest design elements that I've seen coming this week from a number of cities across the US and the world for that matter. Yeah, we'll, we'll post some photos sure. um, of some of those signs. That'd be really cool. Yeah, please. Listeners, share your weekly dose of good design with us on social media. We'd love to hear what you're excited about each week. Thank you again to Jonathan Burke and Jeff Speck for joining us this week. You'll find links on our show page to some of the resources we talked about today. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org. And be sure to get your tickets for our upcoming Design Museum Live virtual events. The next one is about open source wellness on May 26th. We can continue the conversation online. Like us, follow us. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching Design Museum Everywhere. And remember to subscribe to Design is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate us. You can even leave a review. That helps people find our new show. I really appreciate your help on that. This episode was written and edited by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Plom. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. From the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you, and we'll talk to you next week.